Okay. So, so far we've seen that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he's gone into Jerusalem and besieged Jerusalem and taken captive a bunch of people from Judah. And he did that in three different stages. You guys remember what the three Babylonian sieges are? Anybody, can we collectively come up with when these sieges took place? 605. 605, all right. That's when Daniel went into captivity, right? Daniel along with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So that's the first Babylonian siege. What about the second? Does anybody recall that one? That one's probably the most difficult to remember. It's the most obscure. That was in 597. And that's when he took off 10,000 captives. And included within that group was Ezekiel. He's kind of an important character, right? And then the third Babylonian siege, that's when he really came in and totally destroyed the whole city and destroyed the temple. Uh, This is the normal date that people think of when thinking of Babylon uh, captivating Judah. When was that? Anybody? 586. Good job. Yep. That's an important date. That's a good one to remember. 722 is when Assyria came and took the northern kingdom. 586 is when Babylon took the southern kingdom. And after this, we saw in chapter 1 that Daniel, along with his three friends, they refused Nebuchadnezzar's diet, right? He wanted them to eat steak and fine wine, and they said, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We're just going to have veggies and water instead, uh, and likely grains and whatnot along with that, and they did great. Uh, they found favor in the eyes of God because of their faithfulness. They found favor in the eyes of the king. In chapter 2, we see that Nebuchadnezzar starts to have these troubling dreams, and he doesn't know what they're about. He calls in all of his worldly wise men to give him an answer not only of what the dream means, but what the dream was to begin with. And uh, because they're just uh, charlatans, they had no idea what the dream was. They couldn't give an answer. But Daniel was able to provide not only the, the interpretation, but the dream itself and give that to Nebuchadnezzar. But prior to him giving the meaning of the dream, he has this awesome prayer in verses 20 through 23. So let's turn to Daniel 2 and check out that prayer again in 2, 20 through 23. It says that Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. And so, here he's just giving all credit and praise to God right off the bat, isn't he? Letting God know, thank you, this is all from you. He's not taking any credit or any praise for himself. He attributes to him wisdom and power in verse 20, and sovereignty over times and epics and kings and kingdoms in verse 21. He's 
giving God all the credit, all the glory. He says that God is the source of any and all wisdom and understanding that we possess. That's important. That's an acknowledgement from Daniel that he has nothing in of, in and of himself to offer. He's just at the, the whims of God. He's aware of... God is aware of what's in the darkness, though he himself is light. And um, I, I love Christina's comment last week about how uh, he's in charge of the... in control of the macro and the micro. How he's overseeing the the big things and the little things. He is sovereign over kings and slaves. He's sovereign over nations and individuals. God has absolute sovereignty in all realms, all aspects of life. All right, well, let's jump in now to uh, to the dream and what the dream entails. But first, we have to set the stage a little bit in verses 24 through 30. I'll go ahead and read verse 24 to start. It says, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch. Remember, Arioch was the commander in charge over him. Whom the king, it says that right here, <laughs> whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. And so, we want to notice right off the bat that uh, Daniel is not only trying to, to save his own skin and, and cover his own towel or his buddies, he's actually interceding on behalf of all the wise men of Babylon. All these other wise men, again, these charlatans, they're kind of on the hook as well. And so Daniel is now going in and he's uh, going to intercede for them as their lives are being threatened as well. And who is it that is approaching who in this verse? In verse 24. Who's going to who? Yeah, Kilo. Yeah, Daniel goes to Arioch, right? And he says, take me to the king, I'm going to tell him what's up, right? But look at verse 25. It says in 25, Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him, to the king, as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Isn't that interesting? Daniel goes to Arioch, and Arioch goes to the king and says, hey, look who I found. I found this guy. He wants all the credit. He wants all the glory, even though Daniel was the one who approached him, right? So Arioch takes the credit for finding Daniel. Let's keep going. Verse 26, it says that the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the later days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. And so, notice that the first thing that Daniel does is he says, Dude, Nobody can do that. Like, nobody can tell you your dream and its interpretation. You're, you're out of your mind for even asking, essentially, right? Which is a pretty brave thing for him to do, for him to front load his conversation that way, uh, because he was talking to the king. The king could have just offed his head right then, but that's how he front loaded and, and prefaced his conversation. 
Uh, and in doing so, Daniel then proceeds to set God apart from all the other wise men of Babylon. He says, nobody else can do this, but there's a God in heaven, and he's able to do it. Yeah, Jim. Just from reading this, it sounds like Daniel may not have been included among the wise men at this point. Yeah. This is still within that three-year period. So Daniel isn't all chronological. So he hadn't been elevated to that position yet? Uh, no, not, not at this point. He'll ultimately be found to be ten times greater than all the other wise men and conjurers, like we read uh, back in 120. It says, As for ev- every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. But, yeah, this is still during that, that three-year period. This is two years into the reign of so King Nebuchadnezzar. I think he was included in... Yeah. It seems like he separates when he talks about the wise man. Yeah, but his life was on the line, too. It, but it wasn't only his life that he was seeking to save. He was looking out for everybody. Um, but yeah, this was part of the reason why a, a year or two later he was found to be more uh, precious than any of those other people, that he um, was, was greater in his, his competition, his knowledge than everybody else. Yes, Logan. Uh, chapter 2, 18 when Daniel found out about it, he said they told them to seek mercy from God of heaven mm-hmm. concerning this mercy ministry so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of man. Yeah. 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 13 and 18. He was definitely included in that bunch. Alright, well, let's keep going here. Uh, notice in, in 28 when Daniel's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying that God is revealing this dream, these mysteries to you, which is kind of interesting. Daniel's just kind of the, the middleman along for the ride. It says, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the later days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. As for you, O king, while you were on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And so, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was kind of setting these things into motion. He was already thinking about, okay, well, what's going to take place later on? What's happening? And then his dream comes afterwards. God gives him this dream as a result of, um, I, I wouldn't say praying or pleading to God, but he was already kind of thinking and reminiscing on these things, and God gave him the answers. It says at the middle of 29, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me, more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, so that you might understand the thoughts of your mind. That's some massive humility there. Daniel, he's been put in this great opportunity, this great privileged position, where he can take advantage of this. He has this information, this knowledge that God has given to him. And uh, just like we've been looking at in First Samuel, how we're going to look at today, actually, how David has this opportunity to take the king, to take Saul. And he says, no, that's, that's the king's anointed. I'm not going to look at my situations, to look at my circumstances as God telling me that this is okay. 
Daniel wasn't looking at his circumstances and saying, okay, well, I have this opportunity to take advantage of this and to elevate myself. He was very humble in letting the king know, this isn't for me. I'm just the middle man. I'm just a messenger. And so God sends this revelation to Nebuchadnezzar and the understanding of it through Daniel, the humble mediator. God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar primarily. Daniel's just along for the ride. All right, well, let's look at the, the dream itself, at the, just observing what the dream is. Um, did everybody get one of these books? I know a couple of people walked in late. Anybody need a journal? All right, Kilo, keep an eye on that for me, please. All right, so let's go ahead and read verses 31 through 35. It says in verse 31, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone was struck. That struck the statue, became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. And so again, just looking at the the dream aspect, not really getting into the interpretation just yet, we see in verse 31 that there is one single great statue. The text uh, clarifies that and makes it clear. There's only one statue. It's not four or five different statues. It's just one statue that is made up of these different components, these five distinguishable parts of the head and the chest and the arms, of the, the belly or the middle section along with the thighs. Then you have the legs and you have the feet, these five different sections. Verses 34 through 35 speak of this unique stone, this stone that is cut without hands. It's not a a normal stone that you might come across. And this stone not only is unique to begin with, but it grows and it becomes a, a mountain in the end. Very weird dream so far, right? Lots of different aspects of this dream Lots of stuff to figure out. Uh, this stone slash mountain displayed, or displaced rather, every element of the statue, leaving no evidence of it behind. It was all taken away like chaff. Uh, chaff is when you take wheat and you throw it up in the air, and then the wind will take away the chaff, all the worthless stuff, and it will just blow it away. That's how the, the stone leaves the rest of these components of the statue. They're all gone, all at the same time. And the stone is now left as a mountain remaining. Well, this is a very visual dream, right? And surely you guys have seen an image of the statue before. I went and found this image. There were a lot to choose from, and I wasn't super satisfied with any of them. But when you're looking for pictures that you have legal rights to reuse, you're kind of limited. And this is the best one that I found. So that's what we got. So... This kind of gives us a a visual of the head made of gold and the chest and the arms made of silver, the belly and thighs made of bronze or brass, 
like the King James says, the legs of iron and the feet, and later on we'll see the, the toes are included in that and specified in that, made partly of iron and partly of clay. And we'll come back to this image. I just wanted to give you that to give you something in your mind as we continue looking at Daniel's interpretation of it. Let's look at verses 36 through 38. And we'll start to dip into this interpretation a little bit. It says in verse 36, This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And whatever the sons of men wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and he has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. And once again, Daniel has already told the king that all this information comes from God, right? He's let him know, I'm just a messenger. This information, none of your wise men could give this to you. In fact, no man could give you this information. This comes straight from God. And now, again, he is first acknowledging the source of Nebuchadnezzar's power. He's letting him know that you are in this place of power and position because God has put you there. He is the one who has all strength and power and authority, and he has set you up to be the king of kings, right? That's the phrase that he uses speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, two times he acknowledges God as the one who gives him power. In verse 37, he says to you, king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. So every aspect of what you have comes from God. And then he says the same thing again at the end of verse 38. It says that he has given them into your hands and caused you to rule over them. So Daniel acknowledging and, and again, telling this to the face of the most powerful man in the world that you only are here because God has put you here. Similar to what Jesus told to uh, Pilate, right? Was that Pilate or Herod? It was one of them, Pilate. Yes, that's right. That's what he told Pilate, that you only have this power because God has given you this power. Uh, But that was, not to downplay that at all, that was God in the flesh. But Daniel, this... I, I don't know. Both of them, I guess we could say. It's incredible they were able to... <laughs> my, my mind wants to say, well, I guess I have to say now, that he had the stones to say that. Um, and, but we're talking about... Okay, never mind. Yeah, it's incredible that he's sitting there talking to the king and he has the, the guts to say such a thing. All right. Um, so his rule, we see here it's... Um, presented as being universal, that wherever you go, whatever you do, you have absolute control, absolute dominion. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have any reign or rule, like in North America, for instance, but it's essentially saying that wherever he went, God gave him absolute dominion. He was victorious in all of his endeavors. He didn't have anybody that was able to come up and and withstand Nebuchadnezzar because God gave him that strength and that um, that dominion over everybody else. It's Interesting to note this phrase, this title that he uses of Nebuchadnezzar, King of Kings, is also used by Ezekiel. Ezekiel calls Nebuchadnezzar the King of Kings in Ezekiel 26.7. And so that seems like that was a, a title that Nebuchadnezzar probably liked and, and held on to, and it, it spread around, and people picked up on that 
including Ezekiel. Um, and it says very explicitly there in verse 38, you are the head of gold. And so we have the first answer to our mysterious dream puzzle, right, of this statue. It says very explicitly that Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, representative of Babylon, is the head of gold. So when we see that gold, we can equate that with Babylon. Let's read in verse 39, as Daniel continues this interpretation. He says, again, speaking to the face of the the most powerful man in the world, he says, after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you than another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And so we read here that uh, each section represents a, a ruling kingdom. So the head we already know is Babylon. Each of these different sections, these unique sections, are representing different ruling kingdoms, different empires, different dominant world powers. And God has given this vision to Nebuchadnezzar because he's been thinking and reminiscing, okay, well, what does the future hold? God has given it to him. The statue represents man's attempts at uh, sovereign rule. Just like Jerry pointed out for us last week when we went back and looked at Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, that's what they were doing, right? The, the men of that day, of that age, age they wanted to uh, they wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be in in control. They wanted to all get together and see, okay, well, how, how much can we control? How much power can we exhort? And that's continued all throughout world history. And these different nations, these different empires that are represented in this statue are striving for the same kind of power and authority, the sovereign rule, and ultimately they're going to be blown away like chaff, right? Uh, what other information can we draw out of verse 39. What else do we see there other than the fact that this is talking about world empires? You guys got to look in your Bibles for the answers. Not up here. <laughs> Daniel 2.39. What, what information do we gather from there about this statue and the interpretation of it? Yeah, so each one represents a different kingdom. What Alright, good. So each kingdom becomes inferior to the, the previous kingdom, right? So the second empire, the empire that's represented by the silver in the breast and, and arms, it's inferior to Babylon, and this trend continues. It's represented in the value of the metals as well, that the value will go down, it will decrease. And so let's bring up our, our image again and remind ourselves that these empires decrease in superiority. So uh, Babylon, which is represented by the gold, is the, the epitome, really, of the world empires. And when Daniel is given this interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar in 604, uh, he tells him, this is you. This is representing you and your kingdom, your empire that you have built, but there's going to be another that comes after you that's inferior, and that inferiority is going to continue as we go down the line. 
Um, just as, again, the value of the substances goes down. Gold is more valuable than silver, silver than bronze, bronze than iron, and iron than iron mixed with clay, right? Uh, also, we see a, a advancement in time. This is sequential, and that's how we should understand it, right? That after uh, 604 is when this next kingdom comes onto the scene. And a lot of times, people will take this same kind of statue, and they'll flip it and put it on its side so that you can read it from left to right just like we would in, uh, in, on an English timeline, right? Because that's really how it, it flows. And again, I, I would think that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't be too happy to hear that there's going to be another kingdom that rises up after him. Even if it is inferior to him, certainly he's not excited to hear this. Remember, he's not a super nice dude. He's gone and he's conquered all these other areas. Uh, Zedekiah, who we've talked about, he kills his sons, has him watch his sons die, plucks out his eyes, and takes him captive. Uh, he's a pretty wicked man, and he's a really proud and a boastful man. We'll see in chapter 4 that he needs to be humbled, and he gets humbled, but at this point, he's, he's a king of the world, and he knows it. And we also should note that not only does he allow Daniel to continue on with this interpretation without having his head cut off, but Daniel is just incredibly bold for being willing to give this interpretation to the king, uh, even realizing what it might cost him. Um, he's so pointed in delivering this message to the king that God has given him to declare to the king. And I think that we can certainly learn from that. I know that it can be difficult for us sometimes to be bold or to be brave and uh, especially as the world seems to be shifting more and more against Christianity and against us standing up for what the Bible says. And we're put in, in different situations, different positions, especially at work, where our employer has a lot of leverage over us, right? They have the ability to withdraw our, our source of income from us. They have within their grasp our livelihood, but Nebuchadnezzar had within his grasp the life of Daniel. And Daniel didn't hesitate at all to stand up and to tell him, no, there's going to be another kingdom that comes after you. And yeah, it's going to be inferior to you. But remember that you're inferior to God. God is above you. He's the one who gave you all of your power. He's the one who gave you all of your authority. And I just love that, that brave boldness that Daniel has. I think there's a, a lot that we can learn from him. We should definitely take a lesson there. All right, let's keep trotting away. Well, any, any thoughts or questions at this point? We're making decent time. Yes, Logan. I think the, you know, you mentioned how Daniel was so bold. Also, Jesus, when he went before Pilate, was bold. And I think uh, the more we understand the truth of God and who he is, yeah. his word, and who we are, I think it gives us more boldness. For sure. Before these big, and telling the truth. I mean, yeah. yeah, nothing is stronger than that. Amen. It, especially when we have in our mind a, a vision like this, right? Yeah. Where we can just get out of ourselves for a minute because we get so caught up in our lives and we're so worried about how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to make the mortgage or the rent? Um, what am I going to eat for, for dinner tonight? And what am I going to be doing for my next vacation? Or just these little minute details, but 
this statue is representing hundreds of years of world empires. And they're all minuscule in the eyes of God. God is in absolute control, even over nations. And we're caught up in, how am I going to make the rent, right? Just little insignificant things. But when we have a, a more macro vision of the world and who's in control of the world, it should shape our, our approach to life and our willingness to stand before people in boldness. Yeah, Joseph. What kingdom is represented by the silver? Um, we'll get there. Yeah. Because the text doesn't say that, right? It just tells us Babylon. Babylon is the only uh, nation or empire that's actually mentioned here in the text. But I won't leave you without an answer, I promise. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, well, let's keep going. We'll pick up in verse 40. And so, yeah, we're, we'll skip over that for a moment, but we'll come back to the second and third empires. So verse 40 says, Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all things in pieces. And that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron and inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes and the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And so, looking at this fourth kingdom, what aspect of the, the iron is highlighted? What does he bring out as unique about the iron? Hardness. Yes, yeah, it's, it's hardness, it's strength, right? That the, the fourth kingdom is strong. And so, we see not only a, a decrease in superiority um, and uh, marching along this timeline, but the strength seems to dwindle as it's going down from the first kingdom, from Babylon, or not to, to dwindle, to, to increase, rather, from Babylon to uh, the second, third, and fourth kingdoms. The iron, even though it is less valuable, it weighs less than gold and silver, it's stronger than gold and silver. And that's what's being highlighted here very explicitly in the text. It's stronger than all the previous kingdoms. And so this statue would be very top-heavy, right? With gold up on top and just a little bit of iron and clay down at the bottom, decreasing in value, simultaneously increasing in strength. Um, but the, the bottom of the statue, the iron mixed with the clay, this is the obvious outlier, right? Iron mixed with clay, that's not strong. And that's, again, explicitly stated in the, the passage in verse 42, that part of it's going to be brittle because iron mixed with clay, it doesn't really mix. It doesn't adhere. You can just pop the clay out even after you put it into um, a fire. It's not going to actually mold and, and mix well together. And so there are a, a number of interpretations about this passage, about who, what kingdom is representing the, the second, third, and especially the fourth kingdoms. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of different understandings, but I'm going to give you the, 
the right one first, or at least my understanding first. And then we'll look at a couple of wrong understandings. And I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I'm pretty serious about it. All right, so Babylon was at the top, right? That's the, the gold statue. And this, uh, I don't want to say image because the statue is kind of an image, but this chart, I guess, says that the second empire is Medo-Persia, the Medes and the Persians coming together to form an alliance. And they make up the, the second empire that's represented here by the silver uh, chest and arms. And I think that's, that's right. The third is the bronze or the brass represented by Greece. The fourth represented by iron is Rome. And then the iron and clay, I believe, is the revived Roman Empire. And so this chart says that uh, Babylon was from 605 to 539 BC. That's definitely when they dominated the scene. However, they had been around for quite a while before, as Jerry mentioned last week. Uh, Do you guys remember where Abraham was from? Where did God call Abraham from? Yeah, Ur of the Chaldeans, right? And so Babylon was raised up out of the, the Chaldeans. This Nebuchadnezzar's great Babylonian empire was raised up out of the Chaldean empire, which long preceded the Babylonians. And once again, this is the only empire that's actually mentioned by name in our text. And so that's the one that we can say for sure, this is Babylon. But uh, the Medes and the Persians, they are mentioned in Daniel. And so in Daniel chapter 5, verse 28, um, as uh, God is talking to Belshazzar, to the predecessor of Nebuchadnezzar, he says, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And so it says right there in the text that Babylon is going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. And so that's why we can say with certainty that the silver represents the Medes and the Persians. Also, a couple verses after that, in 531, it says, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And Daniel chapter 6 is where we read about Darius and Daniel and the lions and that whole encounter that takes place under the Babylon or the Medo Persian Empire. In Daniel chapter 8, we read about Greece. So let me turn to Daniel chapter 8, and I'll read verses 20 and 21. It says, and we'll get here eventually, so don't let the, the imagery trip you up. It says, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So the silver that we're looking at in this image. Verse 21, the shaggy goat, which again we haven't read about yet, represents the kingdom of Greece. The long horn that is in between his eyes is the first king. So we're going to get into some dicey stuff in a few chapters. But all that to say that Greece is mentioned in the book of Daniel, even if not in this particular passage in Daniel chapter 2. So we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece all mentioned within the book of Daniel. However, the fourth kingdom here, which is identified as Rome, that is not mentioned anywhere by name in the book of Daniel. But I think that it is Rome because the description about Rome fits uh, perfectly. That they will come in, they will crush like iron. And we'll get in again into more detail in chapters 7 and 8 that will make it abundantly clear that this has to be the the Roman Empire. 
um, this chart has a time frame for Rome, you might see on there, going up until 1453. And this is referring to the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. Rome was actually split in 364 AD. They had uh, the, the eastern empire with Constantinople and as their capital, and then the west with Rome as their capital. And Rome actually fell in 475, 476 AD or so. And that's really when like Rome lost all of its strength, all of its influence. But the eastern empire of Constantinople, that continued on until 1453 or so. And some people have suggested that this split within the East and the West that's represented between the legs just says you could say that Medes and the Persians are represented by the two arms of the silver portion of the statue. Um, but if that were to be represented correctly in two scale in the statue, then his right leg would be like three times longer than his left leg. So I don't know how far we should take that imagery, but that has been suggested for sure. Um, most of the, the disagreement about the interpretation of this and the, the understanding of this comes when interpreting the iron mixed with the clay as well as the, the stone aspect, which we'll cover here in a moment. Um, but I think that the iron mixed with clay portion is still yet to come. I don't think that that's happened just yet. Verse 42 mentions the toes, right? And any normal person has 10 toes. And I know it doesn't mention the number 10 here, but it does mention the number 10 in uh, Daniel chapter 7. Um, and also in Revelation, mentions the number 10. And so that's important. And we'll see in Daniel chapter 7 that the 10 toes are representative of 10 kings that are going to be within this iron clay portion of the statue. And at no portion, at no place in, in history has Rome had 10 kings that could qualify as um, representing these 10 toes of the statue. Any other thoughts or questions at this point? I know it's a lot, but it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Again, there are people who will say that it has, and we'll look at that really shortly. Um, but yeah, I think that it hasn't. I think this title, I really like this this phrasing, the revived Roman Empire, Roman Empire being revived later on because Roman Empire was, was seized and done, but I think that there will be a, a revision later on. And before we get into verses 44 and 45, I'll just quickly show you some maps of these empires so you can kind of see how they grew. Um, again, these aren't the greatest maps, but I'm not going to get in trouble for showing them to you, so it's whatever. So this is the, the Babylonian Empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire when Nebuchadnezzar ruled. You can see that he had a, a pretty vast empire there, but the Medes and the Persians came along and they conquered even more land, more territory. This is kind of the land that they amassed for themselves. This is the Greek Empire, the Grecian Empire, is that right? And they added a little bit more territory. And then Rome came along and they really showed them how to build an empire by just completely blowing it all out of the water and 
taking all this land, all this territory for themselves. So they were uh, continuing to, to grow in strength and amass more, more land as time went on. And this is all represented within that dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Now let's go ahead and look at verses 44 and 45. And this talks about the, the stone which comes out. It says, in, those, in the days of those kings, I think that's talking about the, the ten kings that will make up the uh, iron and clay. It says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. <clears throat> Inasmuch as you saw a stone <clears throat> was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king that what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. I want to read to you this quote here from Reynolds Showers, who really picks up on this phrase, the, the God of heaven, in the, verse, in the starting of verse 44. And he says that the Babylonians believed that their gods came from the earth. Daniel wanted to make clear to, that his god was not one of the Babylonian gods. The Babylonians called their chief god Mer Marduk, the great mountain. They believed that their gods came from a sacred mountain of the earth. The mountain that they called the Mount of Lands, the temples, the temples of Babylon were intended to be imitations of mountains. All of this indicates that the Babylonian way of thinking mountains were associated in the Babylonian way of thinking mountains were associated with what was divine. And so Daniel saying, no, this is the, the God of heaven who who sends this stone that's cut with, without hands, without human hands, it's divine in nature, and this stone will crush all these other empires and will become a mountain. So he's using this, this imagery to make clear and to, to once again set apart God from the Babylonian gods. And the Bible often uses this imagery of a stone or of a rock to speak of Jesus. And so I want to go through and look at some of those passages as I think that this stone being cast down from heaven is a reference to Jesus and his kingdom. So let's look at another prophecy in uh, Psalm 118 verse 22. And that says that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We'll see that in the New Testament a couple of times. Isaiah 28:16 says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation firmly placed. He has believed in it. He has believed in it will not be dis disturbed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I'm having a hard time reading right now. All right, and then this next passage I want to look at comes from Matthew 21. You'll remember that in that, uh, in that chapter, it's a parable talking about the landowner who wants this land back, it's being rented out, and he sends slaves to go and get the land, and they get beaten. He sends more slaves, they get killed. He sends his son, and his son gets killed, and that's kind of representative of how God sends all these prophets who are ignored, beaten, and killed, and then he sends his son who is killed, and um, then we get 
this passage in Matthew 21, 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures? Now he's quoting Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So if we fall in humble repentance on Christ, then we'll be saved. But if not, he's going to fall on us. We'll be scattered like dust, which is very similar to the imagery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? Uh, let's look again at um, 1 Peter 2, 6-8. through 8. And Peter says here, for this is contained in Scripture. And then he quotes, again, Psalm 118.22, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, and then he quotes from Isaiah 28.16, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A quote from Isaiah 8.14, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. And so, several times throughout Scripture, Jesus is called the stone, and the stone is um, really a, a picture of his rule and dominion and authority. And I think this passage here in Daniel 2 is, is central to a proper understanding of Jesus and his kingdom to come. This kingdom that, that Jesus is going to establish is going to be superior to all these other kingdoms. Uh, it will be an end of all other kingdoms, and it will itself endure forever. I have a quote here from Matthew Henry, and he says that those kingdoms of the earth that had broken in pieces all about them at length came in their turn to be in like manner broken. So they were doing the breaking before, now they're broken themselves but the kingdom of Christ shall break other kingdoms in pieces and shall itself stand forever. Of the increase of Christ's government and peace, there shall be no end. He's going to rule absolutely with, with all power. He's not going to be subject to anybody. And we read as much in this passage of Revelation eleven fifteen, talking about his uh, enduring uh, kingdom. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That is amazing. That he's going to, again, just say, no, all those other kingdoms, they're, they're gone, they're toast. And he's going to set up and to establish his kingdom forever. And so I want to now look at some of these other interpretations, these uh, what I consider to be wrong interpretations of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I've put this image back up here for us again so that we can be reminded of um, what I think is proved throughout the rest of Daniel, particularly in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. But um, you'll remember from a, a few weeks ago when we were introducing Daniel that there are many people who believe that Daniel was written after the fact, that it wasn't actually a, a prophecy, but they say Daniel is so exact, so specific, that it had to have been written as, as history rather than prophecy. And so it was written in the 2nd century. 
And so some people will actually split apart Babylon into two different empires. They'll say that only Nebuchadnezzar was represented by the head, but that his predecessor, Belteshazzar, was representing the silver. And then the Medo-Persians, they would move down to the bronze or the brass section. They would move Greece down to iron. And then they don't have to worry about Rome at all, which is uh, beneficial for them because they think that Daniel was writing before Rome came on the scene. And if they uh, concede and say, oh, well, yeah, Daniel was writing and predicting Rome, then they really have a problem, even if he's writing in the second century. And so they have very poor presuppositions before they even enter into the interpretation process. They've already concluded that Daniel had to have written this after the fact. And taking that presupposition with them, they come out with a, a different faulty outcome. And for the same reason, others will divide the, the Medes and the Persians into two separate empires so they don't have to deal with Rome. And so they would have Babylon being gold, the Medes representing the silver, Persians representing the bronze, and then Greece would move down to representing the iron and the iron and the clay, and they don't have to worry about Rome at all. Uh, John Walvoord says in his commentary that the basic difficulty is that the critics cannot admit that the fourth kingdom is Rome without attributing genuine prophecy even to a second century BC Daniel. So even if they take Daniel and they place him in that later date, which I think is wrong, I think he was writing when he was writing in uh, the sixth century, uh, they would still have the, the problem of dealing with Rome. And so that skews their, their understanding, it alters their interpretation. Well, many, um, even aside from that, that's like one group of liberal theologians who interpret it that way. There are still many who are closer to our camp who will see the iron and the clay as a reference to ancient Rome, um, not to, to a future revived Roman Empire. And they'll also understand the imagery of the rock as portraying Christ's first coming rather than his second coming. And so here's a, an image that kind of portrays that understanding. And you'll see, they say explicitly up at the top of this image that this is the messianic prophecy of the first coming of Christ. I think that's wrong. I think this is a messianic prophecy of the second coming of Christ. And if you look down at the bottom, um, they, they do say that the iron is representing Rome, but they say that Rome came to end in 33 AD, which is really weird because that didn't happen, right? Um, and that Jesus is the bedrock and that this is speaking of the church. And they quote Matthew 16, 18 there, upon this bedrock, I will build my church. And so they see the church as being the fulfillment of the, the stone coming in and crushing all these other kingdoms, which again, didn't happen, right? Uh, so I think this is a, a poor rendering, a poor interpretation. Yeah, go ahead, Andy. So is that the Roman Catholic? Uh, that's, no, that's the all-millennial, post-millennial understanding. Um, and while they do properly see Jesus as representing the rock, pretty much everybody sees the rock as uh, representing Jesus, they greatly misunderstand the, the timing of this prophecy, thinking that it's talking about his first coming rather than his second coming. And so I want to talk about some problems with this view. Um, first off, we see that, or we know that Christianity wasn't responsible for breaking up the Roman Empire. That just wasn't a thing. The Roman Empire didn't end in 33 AD. 
And they'll say, well, yeah, it didn't end then, but the, that's when Jesus built his church and the church eventually broke up the Roman Empire. I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think that matches up with history. Uh, the other four Gentile kingdoms that we see represented here, they literally reigned on the earth. And so I think the fifth kingdom, though it was from heaven, it will also involve a, a literal earthly reign. And so what they would say is they would say, oh, well, that, that reign is going on right now, that Jesus is reigning right now on this earth, and he's doing so through his church. I don't think that's right. I think that when it talks about that stone coming and, and breaking that statue, that it's talking about a literal kingdom that Christ will establish. And thirdly, we see that Christ will come to establish the kingdom of God on earth when uh, Rome would be in its foot and toe stage, when it would be in this ten-nation confederation stage. And once again, there's never been a, a point in Rome's history where they had ten kings that could represent the ten toes of this statue properly. And fourthly, we see that the imagery of the dream doesn't suggest any coexistence of the Roman Empire and the actual kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom doesn't coexist with the, the iron and the clay. As we read back in verse 35, it will blow them away like chaff. That when God establishes his kingdom, when Christ establishes his kingdom, all these other kingdoms are going to be toast, right? They're not going to be around at all. And the Western Roman Empire lasted 400 years after the first coming of Christ. The Eastern Roman Empire lasted 1,400 years after the first coming of Christ. That doesn't properly align with the, the vision that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And so this view, I think, became popular because many people acknowledge the, the current aspect of God's kingdom of his reign, that Jesus is king now, that he reigns and rules right now, which I totally agree with. Um, however, um, this, this can't negate the literal aspects of a future kingdom that are still yet to come, which I think they, they try to roll into his reign right now. I don't think that's okay. Um, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 24. It says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, his first fruits, he's the first to raise from the dead. After that, those who are Christ, it says, at his coming will be raised. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. I don't think that that has taken place just yet. Got this quote from John Walvoord. He says, if it were not necessary to make Daniel's image conform somehow to the all-millennial and post-millennial concept of the gradual conquering of the world by the gospel, no one would ever have dreamed that the smiting by the stone of Nebuchadnezzar's dream described a long process now more than 1,900 years underway and still far from its completion. I don't think that, that that's a proper interpretation. All right, well, let's wrap up here real quickly. We've got a minute or so. Um, looking at verse 46, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. This is after getting the interpretation. He fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. Actually, this is only a few verses, but we'll, we'll grab those next week. Um, 
just wrapping up the end of chapter 2. Any closing thoughts or questions on that very big chapter? Yes. To say that Jesus is ruling and reigning now as a fulfillment of that would be to deny that Jesus was ruling and reigning before that forever. Yes. Yep. I agree. And yeah, I think that Jesus, when he did come in his first coming, he um, he said that the the kingdom is among you, right? Because the yes. king was there. Yes, not of this world. Daniel tells him that God is in charge now. Yeah, and to be fair, there are some people who will absolutely deny the fact that Jesus is ruling now in in any sense, and they'll say, um, well. He, he will be ruling and reigning later, that this is the, uh, the dominion of Satan, right? He is the prince of the power of the air. This is his world, and um, look forward to his ruling. I think we have to say there, there is an already not yet aspect, both and. Yes. Uh, Andy. I think it's pretty fascinating because if you read the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, um, gold and silver, In his dream, the cornerstone comes and just utterly destroys all of those kingdoms. Yep. Completely. Not gradually, not slowly. Not, not forever. But um, that, I, I guess my point is, is that that cornerstone is superior and, and completely substitutes and places it as the sole authority. I mean, yeah. that's, that's clear from the narrative in the beginning. Yeah, he's not co-reigning with not Rome. He's not co-reigning with anybody. Nope. And, and because he destroys the other ones, he's obviously superior to all of them. And that's, that's the... I mean... I just don't know how you get there from here when you look at the world right now and say that Christ is reigning. Yeah. Christ is king. I'm not arguing that. But he will be reigning on this earth just as those other kings were reigning in a, a literal, physical way on this earth. All right. If you guys have any other questions throughout the week, write them down and bring them back next week. And I know that that's a, a heavy chapter, chapter two. And if we don't understand that, we're going to have a hard time understanding the rest of Daniel. So go home and read and reread Daniel chapter 2 and make sure that you have a, a firm grasp on that. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word, that your word is truth. Help us to, uh, to put that into action, that we wouldn't just uh, read it for intellectual knowledge, but that it would change and affect the, the way that we live, the way that we worship, the way that we uh, go about life with one another. God, pray that the, the rest of the day we would be pleasing to you, that the thoughts of our and meditations of our heart would be focused on you and pleasing to you, and that we would enjoy the fellowship of your people here together. Amen.